This is episode 25 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Ian Dunican. Ian, can you introduce yourself? Oh God, this might be long. <laughs> Take as much time I as was, you need. I was born on a starry, starry night in 1978. <laughs> so um, yes, I was born in 1978, a uh, child of the 70s. Uh, so yeah, I'm Ian Dunican. I am Irish originally. Um, and now I've converted to a new religion called Australianism. I've been here in Australia for about 20 years. Uh, my wife is Australian and we came here to Western Australia for a few days to see a friend when we were backpacking 20 years ago uh, from Africa. And we never left, um, even though my wife is from the East Coast of Australia. So um, I grew up in a town in the middle of Ireland, Ross, that you would know called Athlone on the River Shannon. Divides two provinces and two counties. The gateway to the west where you're from. and um, yeah, so I spent my 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 youth there and uh, joined the army there as well and spent about five years in the military. And then when I left that, I worked in the health and fitness industry for a little while where I met my wife. And then uh, we we eloped <laughs> um, and then got married years later. <laughs> and so we came to Australia and I worked in the mining industry for about 10 years here. And predominantly, I worked in health and safety and uh, business improvement roles. Uh, during that time, uh, I went back to university. I did the kind of the the open university type of thing back in the early two thousands, uh, living in a remote community, and got my got my undergraduate degree in Bachelor of Arts in training and education, so adult education. Uh, then I went on to do uh, an MBA and a master's in mining engineering as well, and I was really interested in kind of combining the health and safety disciplines with productivity. And I was, I was kind of on the edge of what we've called maybe sustainable development, but I was really looking to optimize performance. In about 2008, I got um, interested in more of the fitness for work, human performance part of the, the health portion of the health and safety. And that led then to the development of a role within this mining company I was working for, which ended up being a global role where I traveled the world, uh, specializing in fatigue and human performance. It's not really a discipline that you can go and study in unless you do a PhD specifically in it. Um, I then got invited actually to do a PhD with Monash University in Australia and Harvard as well in the US. And I was doing that for a while just due to work factors and travel and trying to collect data and all that. It just got a bit difficult. So in 2014, after 10 years at mining company, I thought it was time to really put this passion in Bugsolid, which is um, a beautiful a beautiful campus on the, on the, on the, on the Swan River. And I, I did my PhD there. And in conjunction as well, I started two businesses, one being Medias Consulting and the other being Sleep for Performance. Melia's consulting focus on industry around shift work and roster design, uh, fatigue risk management systems, more in a kind of occupational health bracket. And then sleep for performance is where we work with elite athletes or elite athletic teams um, to improve performance. And um, yeah, and then the final thing is I have two adjunct positions, one at UWA and one at Eda County University. And we fund some research through the business and we do a lot of things there to give back. We run an online seminar, which is free for attendees and speakers every year. Um, we're in year two of that. That's gone on June 21st this year. We have a podcast with over 100 free episodes. We've got lots of blogs up there, lots of videos and free lectures and so on. So we try to give back as much as we can and translate that science out to the population. So that's a very brief overview, as brief as I can make it. <laughs> Comprehensively included a lot there. And just to say that this is part of a sleep series, the last episode. So uh, is it fair to say that you specialize in sleep with a wealth of experience in other areas? Yeah, whilst I, I specialize in the area of sleep, I think um, I do look laterally though into other areas. So um, with my background in business and engineering, 
I also have a keen interest as well in, in philosophy, mythology, sociology, geopolitics, all these areas. I actually run a podcast, a separate podcast called Learning to Die. And that's got its own platform, learningtodie.com.au. We have about 29 episodes up there. And I run that with my co-host, Kieran O'Regan, uh, who's based in Cork, originally from Limerick. And, and like yourself, Ross, he's got a background in exercise physiology, but he's also had a few professional fights and he does a lot of coaching now. And most recently, we had Rob Wolf on. Rob Wolf was on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. So we've had Rob on and a whole host of other guests. That's slightly different in my sleep world, but it's an idea of my far-reaching interests um, into different topics. But yeah, really specialize in sleep. And I would actually subcategorize that again. It Really what I'm interested in is chronobiology. And a lot of people talk about being a sleep scientist. Sleep scientists generally work in laboratories or clinical settings or hospital settings. Um, so I think you had Amy Bender on before. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Amy's, Amy, Amy does a lot of that sort of stuff with Rebra around the, the diagnostics around polysomnography and so on. That, that's kind of more in that sleep science realm, sleep science realm. And then what I do is more in that chronobiology. So that's the, I would classify that or describe it as the application of sleep science into the real world. So how do we design shifts and rosters? How do we do travel and jet lag plans? Um, you know, how do we ensure the productivity and performance are, are being optimized around the time of the day? So, so that's, that's really kind of, I think, how I, what I would classify my speciality as. Yeah, very good. So chronobiology, I think I heard about that on uh, Danny Lennon's podcast. Would you know Danny and Sigma? I know Danny, yeah. So I think Alan Flanagan has been doing some of his PhD work around chronobiology, who works with Danny. And actually, Kieran O'Regan, who hosts the Learning to Die podcast with me, Kieran actually used to, I don't know if he still works for Danny, but has done some work for Danny and wrote, has written some articles for Sigma Nutrition. Yeah, I knew I recognized that name. Uh, yeah. yeah, so... Can you explain chronobiology and why people might want to be interested in it if they haven't heard of it before? It's a good question. Um, what is chronobiology? It's interesting because I just emailed somebody yesterday to come on my podcast and do an episode on what is chronobiology because I was sitting there thinking yesterday, how would you describe chronobiology? And I was writing something for like an article I was writing yesterday. And, and really what chronobiology is, is it's really interesting in these natural rhythms of life um, across it. So the earth operates on a 24-hour cycle. People would have heard of circadian rhythms, circa meaning about and dia meaning a day. So it's really anything that's kind of entrenched at 24-hour cycle. And this could be from bacteria to humans to animals. We all operate on a cycle across the day and even then across seasons, across the year. And that word chronobiology, and this is what I was writing yesterday, actually comes from the Greek mythology god Kronos, which um, is often associated with being fatter time. And uh, this Greek god Kronos, who gave birth to Zeus, is uh, where we get these words chron uh, chronology, chronobiology, synchronicity, all come from this word. And so chronobiology is really anything that's interested in these diurnal or these circadian or ultradian rhythms across a 24-hour period or more. Um, so it's really the study of like rhythms of life, I think, uh, and to quote Russell Foster's book from Oxford, um, that's really what it's, what's it, what it's associated with. Because, so it could be animals, it could be people, uh, it could be looking at bacteria in, in little petri dishes, it could be anything really. So chronobiologist is a far wide reaching term that, that people will, will use. But really what I categorize is in the chronobiology of humans. And for me, I describe it as the categorization of humans in applied settings. So looking for any sort of performance improvement for humans is what I'm trying to look at whether it be shift work, whether it be athletes, amateur athletes, day-to-day -day physical activity, you know, whether you're in your 70s and you're struggling with sleep and you want to swim every morning or whether you're 
an aspiring athlete at 17. Yeah. So you just mentioned shift work there. So am I right in saying that shift work is now a carcinogen, a potential carcinogen, cancer causing? Is that right? So yeah, it has, has been for nearly 14 years from the World Health Organization since about 2000, yeah, and predominantly based upon epidemiology studies. But what they found was that, um, yeah, shift work has been classified as a type 2 way carcinogen, so highly probable in the same group as diesel fume particulates. And what it is really is, so for, so for people, don't freak out like straight away. <laughs> don't like listen to this and go, oh, I'm a shift worker, I'm not like a cancer. It's not as simple as that. It's basically, you know, it's the more night shifts you do and the permanent night shift. So when you talk about shift work, it's probably worth knowing that there's different types of shift work. You've got people on a permanent shift. So it could be on like a day shift, then to evening shift, then to night shift. That's like a rotating roster. Then you have people who do maybe a day shift, but could be on call in the evenings as well, like an on-call roster. Then you have people who might do just days and nights, again, rotating. Then you might have what's called a backward rotating roster. People start on nights and go back to days. But then you have people who would actually just be on a fixed roster, permanent days, permanent evenings, permanent nights. And it's that permanent night shift that really increases the odds ratio of cancer for people. So I, I tend to try to describe it as a spectrum. You know, doing shift work, you know, as you go, keep going up towards night shift, you're going to increase the risk. The more night shifts you do, you're going to increase the risk. And if you do permanent night shift, you're definitely going to increase the risk. So as we go along this kind of continuum, and the problem is, I think a lot of people, Ross, think that if I just stay on night shift, it's better for me. I adapt, but humans can't adapt. We're, we're what's called diurnal animals. We're meant to be asleep at night and awake during the day. So whilst there'll be some adaptation, you'll never fully adapt to sleeping during the day and being awake at night. And, and people with severity to do, but there's very few that do adapt. And those that do adapt, it's probably less than 3% of even that. That's very good to know. Yeah, it's like people will say, uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But I guess that that kind of discredits that. Like that's uh, the humans can't adapt that we're diurnal creatures. Yeah, it's very difficult for us to adapt. And one of the biggest things we have to use is is the is the control of light and dark cycles. So unless you're very very well disciplined around light and dark, you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna do it. Like there's studies that do this, and these studies are run in laboratories. And I've I've actually seen this in, in action at Harvard, and I had the, the great privilege of getting these tour this lab in Harvard one time. And this is exactly what they did. Had a big room, massive big room with a bed and a couch and plenty of room, room to move around. And a guy was in there for six weeks and they controlled the light and dark cycles. No windows, no nothing. He had a rectal thermometer, which means it's a thermometer stuck up his ass, <laughs> measuring his body temperature across a 24-hour period. He had all sorts of wires and I'm looking at EEG and EKG and so on and actigraphy for movement. And he was living in there for six weeks and he was getting paid well for it. And they were looking at circadian rhythms and how they could manipulate them. Because in the absence of light and dark cycles, natural light and dark cycles, your body will start free running. And so eventually he would come around to being a night shift person, but then he'd go back around the clock again. So people would keep kind of free running around, around the clock. So there was no clock in there. He'd no cues or whatever. The, the best way I describe this to people is if you've ever been to the casino, that's like running a shift work experiment because there's no natural light. There's no clocks on the wall. They're pumping you full of oxygen. And you've got no time cues whatsoever. So it's classic, like, you know, if you walk into a casino at two o'clock in the day, it might, you might feel like it's like nine o'clock at night. Or vice versa, you walk in at four o'clock in the morning, you might feel like it's two o'clock in the day, you know? So this is, this is really what's going on. It reminds me of, in your TED talk, you were saying about your hallucinating and you saw a dog. Yeah. 
like well no wonder because you were up so late so so late like you know you're up for so many hours so it's like if you tried to run that experiment where you're doing shift work or in a situation like that guy with, with no light it's like crazy things are going to happen like because we're not meant to be like that you know we're meant to go to sleep when it's dark and wake up when there's light yeah and 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 that story is like people look at me and think I, somebody was asking me about that last week and i went you think i'm joking it's not a joke it wasn't put in there for effect as as true as I'm looking at you here right now, Ross, that dog was real to me. And I was like, man, this is like, this is crazy. This is unreal. It was so real. And it, I can still see that dog in my mind's eye. Like it's just, and it was like this kind of dog wolf thing. It was just beautiful dog. So, so yeah, I, I've, I've had other hallucinations as well whilst running as well, where I was running like in a valley in, in the Blue Mountains in Australia and there was lots of horses. And I came out and I was like, man, there's loads of brumbies. Is that what you call them? I was going down that valley. People were like, what? I saw loads of brumbies running through the woods. And I'm like, there's no horse down there, man. Tell you, there's no fucking horse around here for, for miles. And I was like, oh, okay. And it just shows you, like, it, that's cumulative wakefulness and, you know, exhaustion as well, probably lack of sugar and, you know, getting a bit delirious. So it just goes to show you how crazy the mind is when we have a very acute sleep deprivation as well. Like, you know, it's not even that long. So in that run there, that in the TED Talk, I was running for about 27, 28 hours, but probably had been awake cumulatively for nearly, I don't know, probably 35 um, so it's not even that long, really. It's less than two days. So it just goes to show you how quickly, like, the mind can start playing tricks. Yeah. So would it be safe to say that we, the body, the mind, we love routine. You know, kind of going in that uh, that circular motion of, of the day with, with the the light and dark cycles. We really adapt well to that. Is that how we work most optimally? Yeah, we're we're set up for that. So if you look at kind of what I would call a chronobiology wheel, which would start at six in the morning, right through to six in the evening, and then we go into the dark phase, we'll say at nighttime, just in general. We definitely, there's definitely different things that happen across the time of the day. So when you wake up in the morning, you know, melatonin. So it's for me like it's half seven in the morning. Melatonin is secreted, is, is ceased in my body now. So I've done that sleep inducing hormone. Cortisol is starting to rise. It's bright outside, the sun is coming up. That's going to help synchronize my SCN through absorbing light into my eye, into my internal body clock. That's going to make me feel more alert between sort of like eight now and 12. I'll go into my peak of kind of cognitive alertness in the morning. This is why some people, a lot of people will find that they do better work in the morning. They can concentrate. And then in the afternoon, I'll have a little dip again after lunch. And this is not because of food. Um, this is due to a, what we call a circadian day or a little dip. Now, it is interesting because if you look at uh, early, earlier philosophers like uh, earlier, early philosophers like Aristotle and, and Socrates, uh, they actually hypothesized that it was the food that we ate that caused sleepiness. And when you think about it from a cause and effect point of view, it's not actually a bad idea because they would think if you eat at lunchtime, they thought that some sort of vapor from the food was released, came up the esophagus into the brain and made you feel sleepy. And then at nighttime, you would often eat a larger meal. So again, you would think that the vapors came up and then you would sleep because most people would sleep within like three or four hours of having some food at night. So I thought, wow, that must be some sort of slow release. But that's not actually the case. Um, we actually go through these kind of circadian dips during the days in this chronobiology world. And so we have that little dip again after lunch. And that's why places like Spain and that have a siesta. It's, you know, some people often say, oh, that's just because they eat too much and they feel sleepy. It's just pure greed that causes that sleep. And it's actually not. It's a normal biological function. And then in the afternoon, we... We, you know, we kind of get this next peak again. We've got better reaction time. We've got better physical strength. We've got uh, better cardiovascular efficiency. And so from a time of day to optimize performance, most humans are optimized in terms of physical performance between sort of roughly 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. So if you want to do a PB at the gym, lifting weights, you want to try and do a fast 10K, 
this is the time of day really where you should be trying to do this sort of work. And then after that, we enter into what's called um, the, the wake maintenance zone, which occurs roughly between six and nine o'clock at night. And this is the hardest time in a 24 hour period for people to sleep. And I, I use this analogy a lot, which is you might be at work all day, working nine to five and half of your day, you're like, oh, I'm so tired. When I go home tonight, I'm just going to go straight home, have my dinner and go to bed. I'm going to be in bed at half six. I'm so tired. Like I, I can't even understand I'm going to stay awake. And then as you're driving home at sort of five, half five, you're thinking, well, I'm actually feeling quite good. I'm getting quite energetic. Maybe I just work with a bunch of assholes and the further I get away from them, the better I feel. And it's actually not. It's actually, you're coming into this wake maintenance zone. And this is probably a hangover from when we were getting hunted by saber-toothed tigers. And we needed to be hypervigilant when the sun was going down around this time in the early evening. And so this is still the time of our day when we have high blood pressure, sort of very alert what's going on. And it's the hardest time in a 24-hour period to, to sleep. So if you're a shift worker trying to go to bed at you want to work at midnight, you're trying to go to bed at six in the evening. This is why you can't sleep probably till about nine or half nine. Um, and then around nine o'clock, then we go into the nighttime period. We've got melatonin being secreted, cortisol, you know, dips. Um, and then as we get further into that night, lower body temperature, and then, you know, perfect conditions for, for sleep because we have this dip in the circadian rhythm and we got high homeostatic drive for sleep and it creates the perfect conditions for sleep. And then that all repeats itself every 24 hours. And so the more we can optimize or synchronize ourselves to that, the better. However, the final point on that, Ross, is we have to be aware of chronotypes, which is basically three different types of chronotypes. We've got larks, we've got intermediates, who are sometimes called the doves, and then we've got the owls, who are the, who are the late or the, um, the late people. So the larks who like to get, up to get up early and go to bed early. This is like young kids. Then you've got the owls who like to go to bed late and get up late. This is about teenagers. And then you would have people who might want to go to bed at 11 and get up at seven. Now, these are all interesting because what I just described to you from that normal kind of chronobiology phase that people go through across a day, they might be slightly altered for larks and owls. So if you assess your chronotype, Ross, and you're an owl and you go, oh, I'm an owl chronotype. I like to go to bed late and get up late. So I don't really fall asleep till about one o'clock in the morning. And I get, I like to get up around eight or nine. There's no point in you getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go lifting weights because you're following someone on Instagram or, you know, you want to be following like a David Goggins and running all night. This isn't going to do you, do you much good. It's probably going to do you more harm in the long run. So we try to optimize people's chronobiology and chronotype <clears throat> to get the best possible performance. And it's really interesting because people will look at YouTube videos, movies, and I've said this a lot with combat sport athletes, they, they fight at nighttime, but they want to get up at four o'clock in the morning and eat raw eggs and, and run like Rocky when that was a movie. You know, it's like Rocky is not a strength and conditioning documentary, you know, but people will still think that this is the right thing to do because they're, they're working hard. And all you're doing is just, you know, you're just, you're just putting your system into a, into a deficit. You're just ruining yourself in terms of not optimization um, of the time of day of training. So it's really important to consider chronotype as well when we're trying to optimize chronobiology or vice versa. If you're a large chronotype and you're, you want to get more into that evening chronotype, we have to use um, specific strategies to move you around that wheel. Yeah, it's like with the Rocky movie, it's like the power of myth. It's very powerful to like motivate mm -hmm. people to get them to do things. Um, so if uh, we kind of feel a, a lull in the afternoon sometimes, is that where it's a good time to have a nap? And what would your kind of opinion be around having naps in general? Like, would you yeah, recommend so, them or avoid them? 
So before we talk about NAPS, it's probably worth talking about three different things, monophasic, biphasic, and polyphasic. So monophasic is one sleep period. You go to bed at, let's say, 11 p.m., wake up at 7 a.m. Uh, biphasic is you have two sleep periods. So you go to bed at night, and you might sleep from midnight till 6 in the morning, and then you have a nap in the afternoon. And then you have polyphasic, um, which would be you would have a big sleep period from maybe 2 till 6 a.m., and then you would have lots of naps across the day. Either which way you cut that, that adds up to between seven and nine hours a night. That's what you're still trying, sorry, seven to nine hours in a 24-hour period. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's what you're trying to achieve. So the question is about naps is, if you get into a habit of having naps every day, if you miss them, you're screwed, right? So if you have naps, if you go, right, I'm just going to nap every day because that's really good. I heard that on, on Ross's podcast. I'm going to nap every day. If you're in a workplace where you can't nap, how are you going to get your nap? If you're in a job where you can't nap, driver, pilot, like you don't be flying on a plane from Los Angeles to New York and the pilot goes, oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's 1 p.m. I'm going to just pull over an hour for my nap. Like that's not going to, you don't want that to be happening either. So it depends on the, what we would call the, the safety criticality of the role as well. So there's a lot of stuff we do in occupational settings. So the answer to your question is, it depends on your strategy. It also depends on how much sleep you've had the night before and what kind of sleeper you want to be. However, if you've had a bad night's sleep or you're going through a bad sleep period, it's not a bad thing to have a nap during the day. But you must be aware that if you have a nap during the day, you're going to reduce your sleep pressure and you may have trouble again the next night sleeping. So sometimes when people get into a habit of napping, they put themselves into a bad cycle. So a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, I'm an insomniac. You know, I go to bed at two o'clock in the morning. I get up at seven. Soon you get five hours sleep a night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you start delving deeper, you find out that they're sleeping for three hours in the afternoon. It's like, wait, no, you've slept for five hours overnight and now you're sleeping from one o'clock till four. You're actually getting eight hours sleep. You've just pushed yourself into a biphasic. No, no, I'm an insomniac. No, you're not an insomniac. <laughs> you're actually sleeping in this biphasic world. And so this is, this is where we have to distinguish the benefits of naps and, 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 and to the cons of naps because the con of a nap might be it might get you into this bad cycle. So I would say to people, you can use naps strategically over time, but you shouldn't become reliant on them unless your schedule allows you to do it. You work from home, you work for yourself. You've got complete free reign, go ahead and do it. Um, but you should use them strategically and you should be aware of the consequences of them. And, um, you know, like, like a lot of people say, there's no biological free ride. You can't cheat the system here. A lot of people think that polyphasic or biphasic or napping is cheating the system. It still adds up to seven to nine hours across a 24-hour period. Where we probably use naps more strategically with elite athletes is when they go into high training loads and you're talking about elite athletes where this is their full-time job, then we're using naps for recovery. But again, we're trying to push them up to nine hours and plus sometimes in a 24-hour period of sleep. So it's a lot different than someone working in an occupational setting or working at a desk. So to answer your question, Ross, like everything probably in science and particularly human biological sciences, depends. <laughs> naps are, uh, so naps can be good, but naps can be bad as well. So it's about how you strategically use them across the week. Um, and so I know I didn't give you the, the silver bullet answer there, but um, yeah, it's not, it's not like politics where everybody has the answer. <laughs> I think my takeaway is that if I feel like I need one, like really need one, uh, I'll take one, but also be aware that uh, it could reduce that sleep pressure. So it's kind of like uh, I might pay for it later on in the night if I fall asleep. So sometimes it's good to push through and sometimes it could be good to take a nap depending on the day, but then it really, 
Yeah, and that's that, and and you're dead right. Sometimes it can be just good to push through, and that's what I say to people who do shift work. So let's say you do I don't know two or three nights, two or three days. Let's say we do two days, and then you do two nights, and you have four days off. Let's say they're twelve hour shifts. Some people say, well, like after the last night shift, I want to try getting back onto a day shift schedule because I want to spend time with my family and friends. Should I sleep all that day, or what should I do? And so I'll say, if you come off at six in the morning, sleep till maybe about ten or eleven, get four or five hours sleep to reduce some of that sleep pressure. But then you want to get up, expose yourself to natural light, do some light activity, and basically have like a what I would call a low risk day. So we don't want you out driving around town doing lots of, um, you know, lots of you know, errands or jobs or messages, whatever you want to call them. And we don't want you out sort of cycling on the road. And we don't want you lifting really heavy weights. And we don't want you making any kind of big cognitive decisions. So it's not a good day to go and meet with your bank manager to discuss a mortgage and repayments or go and buy a car. Um, and it's not a day to kind of, uh, Get on the get on the beer, you know. I either this is a day where you should be getting some natural light, uh, a bit of low intensity activity, just trying to resynchronize yourself to these days, and and like you said, push through and have a kind of a bit of a shitty day, and then the next three days should be good for you. Yeah, kind of take a step back, um, to take two forward type of thing. So um, yeah, yeah, and it just reminds me actually. I heard that LeBron between games or just on game day will he sleep like ten hours or something like that. You think sleeping more than the seven to nine is better? Is more sleep better? Aiming for the nine is, is, is good or is seven or eight better? So in general, most of the research shows that seven to nine hours is, is where we want to be in terms of um, sleep duration. And we find then that the remaining 5%, if we split that in two, we've got two and a half percent, you know, they will need less than seven hours. So a very small number of population. And then some will need more than that. And I think then once you add in these athletic endeavors that people are undertaking or full-time athletes, then, you know, you can, you can push that up over the nine hours. And we generally see that when we push um, the sleep up above nine hours, we see a reduction in body fat because obviously leptin and ghrelin appetite hormones are related to this. We see uh, better performance, uh, basically see more longevity in a career, particularly athletes over 30. I do a, lot, a number of professional athletes and once they hit 30, they're like, right, how do I milk? The, the last few years out of this and it's generally around you know alcohol caffeine sleep recovery the recovery part becomes more important i had a very interesting guy on my podcast uh brandon marcello who's in the us he works a lot with military and he did his phd in in recovery and he looked at really you know overtraining and so on and one of the things that brandon says is that there's not just thing as um overtraining there's just under recovery so if you get the balance right you know, then it's going to be, you're going to get this kind of, I suppose, like homeostasis. It's going to be just this perfect balance. So one of the things that we use on the recovery side is, is sleep. And unfortunately, and I've said this many times, there's so many things out in the market about recovery. When people talk to me about recovery, they talk about cryotherapy, they talk about ice baths, they talk about heat, they talk about, you know, some sort of boot they can put on their leg. Uh, they talk about every sort of thing, technology. They very rarely then talk about sleep. But if you were to break all the recovery modalities out, and put them in this uh, recovery modality pyramid, at the base of that pyramid would be sleep. And like I said to people, the, the cost of sleep is free. No one's charging you for it. So I, I feel like sometimes like if I charge people for sleep, you know, they would actually go, oh, wow, did you know you can go and pay to sleep in this place? Well, you can do it at home as well. But people seem to be obsessed with buying gadgets. Um, and so this will be the number one thing that we can do, sleep. So for people like LeBron and Tom Brady and so on, getting as much sleep as possible or even more than average is just going to really um, reduce any probability of that recovery. 
um, been an issue for them in terms of performance. And for myself, Ross, like I'm, I'm 43 and outside of my work, I've, um, for 10 years, I ran ultra marathons. Um, I ran the Leadville 100, as you saw in the, in the TED talk in the Colorado Rockies, which is a hundred mile foot race at altitude. Um, I've ran a bunch of hundred K races in, in mountains. Uh, last year I swam to an island off, off, um, Perth, which is called Rottnest Island. It's a 20 kilometer ocean swim unsupported, uh, no wetsuit, you know, you just, you swim as you are. And that's a, quite a shark infested nice area, which you try not to think about. So, and I only started swimming like three years ago. And then my goal was to swim that I've swam a number of 10 K ocean swims. Um, I've got my black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu just before Christmas. I do some boxing as well. So I understand what it's like to be somewhat a serious athlete in, in terms of, and I'm not saying I'm a professional athlete, uh, far from it. I'm very much a recreational, but I train or exercise at least 12 hours a week. And, and so for me, as I'm getting older now, like I stopped drinking, paying more attention to my diet. I definitely, you know, try and get as much sleep as I can to enable next day performance. Am I perfect? No, but I'm striving to get as much as I can because I know on the days, particularly in the weekends where I can sleep in and I get like eight or nine hours, I feel like Superman in the afternoon. Like I feel really good when I do that. Um, and it's not always easy because I have to run businesses, like I said, and do research. So when people say to me, you know, what would you know? You're just a researcher. Like, well, actually, I, I try to balance them all, you know, across different time zones and do different things and have different clients and it can be difficult. So I do empathize with people trying to do it. But um, particularly for your older athletes, if you want to optimize, you know, physical performance, mental, cognitive performance and uh, body composition, which obviously is a challenge for us as we get older, all these things are going to help. And particularly for men, um, we've also seen that increase in sleep leads to an increase in stage three sleep. And this increases uh, growth hormone release testosterone. So it's very helpful for men over 40s to optimize sleep. It's one of the first things that a lot of people will look at to uh, increase growth hormone. So yeah, lots of things happen there when we sleep. Um, so naps can be beneficial, but, uh, yeah, I think there's no deleterious effects of getting more sleep, but then again, you need to probably have a look at it yourself and see if you're, if you're being too groggy and too sleepy during the day, you might want to look at how you optimize that and get back, maybe even a little bit less sleep. So it's, it's again about how you may feel, how you perform as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, if you're not getting enough sleep, you could, uh, perform better, feel better, and then also look better, you know? So, uh, it's free, which is, is, is the main part of it. So it's like, if you're not getting enough sleep, it's a really, you know, kind of cost-effective way to, to feel better. Um, so we just, we talked a little bit about push. Sorry, just on that, Ross, can I just add one more point to that as well? Because there's some really good interest in research that's been going on for like over 20 years, I think at the University of Chicago. And it actually shows from epidemiology studies, which is basically the less sleep you get, the higher your BMI. So as people proportionally get less sleep, their body mass index increases. Also does type 2 diabetes, which obviously is linked to BMI. So if you're looking to optimize your health and you're not even an athlete and you're just, if you want to optimize your health just in general, you know, getting this sleep is really going to help you reduce your BMI and reduce your risk of uh, diabetes as well. It, it, just as a separate kind of point to uh, athletic optimization. Yeah, and like you spoke about cortisol and melatonin and uh, they go in a, a cycle across the day. So th those are your hormones. So is it fair to say that every other hormone in your body, like you said, leptin, ghrelin, uh, is linked in to this daily cycle, but then when you don't sleep enough, it all gets thrown off. And that's where things like uh, 
obesity, diabetes start to, the risk starts to increase. Is that a side effect? That's right, yeah. So I, I spoke a little bit about the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, a while ago about um, this. This sits in the base of your hypothalamus in the brain and is responsible for regulating your body over a 24-hour period. This is really what is your internal body clock. So when people say my body clock is off, this is what they're talking about. And there's three different ways you might have observed this for your listeners. One is social jet lag, one is jet lag, and one is shift work. Social jet lag. Um, we may have all have experienced this, Ross, in our younger days. You know, we go to school or work during the, during the week, Monday to Thursday, we're really good. And Thursday night, I will have a few drinks. Well, you know, we'll say maybe till 12, right? Because it's nearly the weekend. Friday night, then we go absolutely bananas and we're out till two or three in the morning. And then Saturday night, we, uh, on Saturday, we sleep in maybe till two o'clock. And then we're like, oh, it's Saturday. And all our friends are meeting up. And then we go absolutely ballistic. We go out, we go to a pub, we go to a nightclub, and then we go back and have a house party. And at 6 a.m. And then you send, spend all Sunday just sitting around sleeping, napping, um, eating shitty food. And then you go back to work on Monday and you do it all again. That, and that, that's actually social jet lag because we, we completely have uh, screwed up our, our sleep and wake patterns. And we get away with that when we're a bit younger. We've all done it. Like I've been the king of it. So I'm not going to sit here and pontificate that I was perfect. Um, and like I said to you before the podcast, I, I fell around your hometown, Galway, many a night when I was younger. And it was great fun. Um, and then we have jet lag. And jet lag is when we cross multiple uh, time zones or we have rapid transmeridian travel. And we published some work in this. Uh, we published some work with this with an elite rugby team here in, in Perth. And we've also, I've also been part of a group which has had a travel consensus, uh, travel fatigue and jet lag consensus paper, uh, which Amy Bender, who've had on before, was part of that as well and many others. And so jet lag is really the disruption or the desynchronization of this internal body clock. And It'll, jet lag will be worse when you go in an easterly direction and going in a westerly direction is easier to adapt. Um, and you need to cross at least, you know, probably three time zones before you start seeing a, a negative effect. But if you travel within the same time zone, you're not going to have a jet lag. You're going to have maybe a bit of travel fatigue. So if I travel from London to Johannesburg on a, on a flight, which is about 10 hours, so we're going from England to South Africa, we're not going to have any jet lag, but we have travel fatigue traveling within the same time zone, which is quite different. Um, so this will cause desynchronization to this SCN. And then you'll have shift work disorder, like we just we spoke about. This is the inability to adapt to day shifts and night shifts and so on. Now, what's interesting about that internal body clock is, and this is not an area I specialize in, so people specialize in, in just this part of chronobiology. And this is what we call clocks. Um, you've got this internal body clock in the brain, the SCN, which is the size of about a cluster of cells, about the size of your small fingernail. And I had Russell Foster on my podcast discussing this um, and Russell was also my PhD examiner as well, which was, which was good. And then myself and Russell have spoken here in the Pilbara too. Russell's got an excellent Ted talk as well, by the way, very, very interesting Ted talk. Uh, what we're putting in the, in the show notes. Um, and so the, the SCN or this internal body clock also synchronizes what we call peripheral clocks throughout the body. So Ross, you may have experienced that if you've traveled like from Los Angeles to, to Dublin, you would feel tired at weird times of the day. You'd be hungry at odd times. You might wake up at four o'clock in the morning, starve and hungry, you know, whatever it might be. This is because these clocks are all off and it completely deregulates or desynchronizes your whole uh, system. So this is why we see people when they work shift work at three o'clock in the morning going, oh man, I just want a big greasy burger and some fries or chips. This is why. It's because it's leptin and ghrelin is completely screwed up. And so what we see then is in people who travel a lot, we see weight gain. 
We also see in shift workers that generally shift workers who are doing rotating shift work over a year can gain up to a five kilo um, difference in body weight, regardless of the caloric intake. So if you and I, Ross, are, let's say, a 70 kilo male, and we both do shift work, as we both, uh, we're both in the job and I do shift work, at the end of the year, if we had taken, let's say, two and a half thousand calories per day, I can be five kilos heavier than you at the end of the year, just due to how I metabolized that, those calories and how I you know, basically function across the year. So if you're a shift worker or you travel a lot or you have a social jet lag schedule, you're putting yourself like way behind everybody else. So if you want equal opportunity on the start line, get your sleep in order because it'll put you in line with everybody else. So you can completely like put yourself behind everybody straight away. And it's not too uncommon for people to do this. So that, that's, um, that's an interesting area to look at, I think, for people. Yeah, yeah. So um, just something to think about. Uh, melatonin, maybe, would that be kind of useful to kind of help with, with the jet lag and the travel and stuff like that? Or could you sleep more before traveling? Could you cap, catch up on it after? Would things like that work? So um, all of those are true and all of those are wrong. <laughs> and the reason being coming back to a bit like, you know, the it depends type of answer as well. I sound like a politician sometimes, but it does depend because people have this idea that melatonin is this catch-all silver bullet drug that you just take and it knocks you out. Um, depending on, and we, we spoke about this in this travel fatigue and jet lag consensus paper, which is freely available. So again, you can put it in the show notes, people can read it. And it's got some really good infographs at the back of the paper as well, which people can look at, um, you know, in terms of direction of travel and so on. When to take melatonin and so on. The interesting thing about melatonin is what the first thing I would say to address that one is melatonin is different in every country. If you get melatonin in the US, the interesting thing about melatonin is that in the US and Canada, you can buy three mil, milligrams, five milligrams, 10 milligrams. But in Australia, that's a prescription drug. And so in Australia, yeah, you can get over-the-counter melatonin, but we don't actually know what's in it. We don't actually know the percentage or the milligrams of melatonin which is in it. So you can't actually have a, you know, you can't actually do any sort of dose-response stuff for it. The other thing is that taking melatonin is an interesting thing. So depending on whether you're addressing shift work disorder, jet lag, social jet lag, the timing of melatonin is going to be key. So it's not always the case that you take melatonin. So the timing of melatonin is a, is a key factor. But also, like you said as well, light and dark cycles are, are vital here as well. So when we look at managing jet lag, shift work disorder, social jet lag, light and dark cycles, melatonin, timing of nutrition, a strategic use of caffeine and alcohol, and physical activity are the main kind of focus we will want to try and have people adapt um, to a location and lots of similarities between them, but it's not, there's no golden elixir of kind of like do steps one to five. It depends where you're going and what direction and what's happening. And what really depends is, is the time of day for performance. So if I'm, if you're traveling Ross back to Ireland and you want a jet lag plan, but you're going back for a wedding and you want a party, it's not really that bad. But if you're traveling back to Ireland and you got a boxing match at 9 PM in Dublin, you know, in a week's time, then it's a very different jet lag plan because we want to optimize you for that time of day. We want to get you ready for that competition. We don't want to get you ready to go back and go to a wedding, you know, because the risks are completely different. In saying that, if you go to a wedding, you might get into a boxing match in Ireland too. So who knows? 
Yeah, you wouldn't know it's a, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a lucky dip. And, yeah. and, that, and that's what we do. So I currently work with the McLaren Formula One team, and I have been, this is my second season with them. And that's what we do. We do all their travel and jet lag plans for them because they can spend like two weeks away, you know, like a week in China and then go to Japan and then they're back in the UK. And so that's like rapid travel and jet lag and then they're working and then they're practicing qualifying and race day and so on. So there's different kind of drivers there as opposed to somebody just going on a holiday. I know some people are going holidays like to Hawaii from Australia and they're like, I don't care about jet lag. I'm going, I'm just sleeping. No matter what happens, I'm just sleeping whatever time I wake up and that's fine. There's no risk there. But don't expect to get away with that strategy going to like London for five days of business meetings because you'll be asleep then all day. Yeah, so again, it kind of depends on, on what's required and what you want to do. So just going back to the melatonin, is there any side effects for people who can get it? Because I know it's kind of, even in Ireland, you can't get it. But uh, I, I would have melatonin. Um, so basically, is there any side effects to having it? Um, and then the timing, once you keep it consistent, is it like, so for melatonin, just going back to that. So uh, is there any side effects with taking like different doses? Like, you know, you said there's like the three, five and 10 milligrams. And then the timing of it, should people, if they are going to take it, should they try to like cycle on and off it? Um, or can they take it like, you know, every day, 365, no issues? Well, I, I think it really, it depends on what you're using it for. So some people get strategically used, um, will strategically use melatonin in terms of managing insomnia. And so that will depend on, on what's happening for them. And they might have to take it long-term. Uh, for jet lag, we'd only recommend taking it short-term. So it's an acute phase to basically get used to a, a new location. So you might have to take it for maybe up to three or four days when you get somewhere. So um, that would be the kind of recommendation with, with those people. And then to use it every single day to manage shift work would not be really recommended either. So, but, but again, that's, that's probably my bent on it where, you know, I think having you know, continual dependency on a medication is not very good. So uh, I'm not a physician, so I can't really get into recommendations of, of melatonin for, for individuals. And um, that would have to be done, you know, in combination with that, because there might be some other issues that people have to manage that we need to be aware of. Um, so I think in general, I would say it might have to be used long-term for, you know, what we call circadian rhythm disorders like insomnia. Uh, it can be used in the acute phase to get over jet lag, and it maybe can be used in the acute phase as well to overcome some periods of difficulty with shift work disorder as well. But in general, I don't know anybody that kind of recommends people be on melatonin forever as a, as a catch-all uh, drug. But in Senda, I know people that do, and I think it's more of a placebo effect for people than it is for anything else. Um, I know one guy that was on it for nearly 20 years, and it was just a ritual of taking it. And so, you know, I think if he took a Panadol, he probably would feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, the placebo effect is, is strong. So um, then going back to pushing through, you know, when you don't get a good night's sleep. So caffeine, what's kind of your recommendations around caffeine, um, like in terms of like timing um, and just kind of generally for sleep? Because I think ideally, just in my own experience, if I could, you know, not drink coffee at all, because I've done it for like 30 days, 60 days, and I, I felt uh, my tiredness so much more when I didn't have any caffeine. Um, but then performance and the days where you don't sleep well, caffeine is very useful. So I guess, I think if I could, I would go without it completely, but it's just, it's everywhere. So um, do you think that it has a large effect on our sleep? Um, and 
you think it's even a realistic game to like do it out all together and try and kind of you know maximally opt, uh, optimize your sleep or is it is it a minimal effect once you time it right yeah, we actually did some research on this back uh, a number of years ago with a super rugby team. We had it published in the European Journal of Sports Science. It was called Caffeine Use in a Super Rugby Game and its Relationship to Post-Game Sleep. So I think there's a couple of things here is that you know, caffeine, obviously, it's it's all around us. We we have a recreationally, you know, we go and have a coffee, have a bit of a chat, business meetings and so on. Always happen around coffee. Uh, it's become this um, nearly like, a, like going for a beer for some people and having a bit of a chat. Uh, I think it's... It's, it's obviously very prevalent in our society. But then we also have people using it strategically, taking caffeine tablets, taking pre-workouts with caffeine in it. Uh, um, so people use it kind of in, in a number of different manners. So caffeine definitely affects sleep. And we know that from the research and just general kind of research um, laboratory-based studies that caffeine will impact the, the time it takes to fall asleep. So it's an alerting or a stimulant. So it's going to cause you to stay awake longer. And then when you do sleep as well, it's going to cause fragmentation in your sleep. So a lot of people who do shift work will often use a lot of caffeine overnight, but then they'll experience a lot of fragmentation during the day because of this overconsumption of caffeine. And it seems to be that people think that if you just drink caffeine, it keeps you awake for like an hour or so. But to understand um, the effect of caffeine on sleep, we have to look at the the basic pharmacokinetics of, of caffeine. So in general, for most people, when they consume uh, coffee or caffeine in any form, whether it be in chocolate, pre-workout, or as a tablet, or as, a, as an effervescent drink, is it can take up uh, from sort of 10, to 10 minutes to 60 minutes for caffeine to peak within, a, within, within somebody. And then the half-life of caffeine is approximately four hours. So if you were having a cup of coffee after dinner at 7 p.m., that would peak in your body at 8 p.m., and then it could be midnight before you were able to... Uh, able to sleep. Now that's in general. Some people can have coffee and fall straight asleep, but we also see a lot of um, fragmentation in their sleep overnight, lots of disruption, and maybe even cause people to wake up and, and go to the bathroom. So for people who have trouble with, with sleep due to caffeine, we would say, you know, sea salt caffeine at about 12 o'clock in the day, midday. And for those people still having trouble or feeling alert in the evening, you might want to stop caffeine even earlier in the day. So it might be a little bit of personal reverse engineering to see the effect of caffeine on your sleep. But I know some people that can have coffee in the morning and that still affects their sleep. So they, they kind of will go cold turkey or go completely off caffeine. So in our study, when we worked looked at super rugby athletes, we found that number one, there was a mistiming of, of caffeine. So they were consuming caffeine just right before the game or at half time. They weren't getting the ergogenic effect or the performance effect during the game. And then it was actually affecting their sleep afterwards. And we found in the associations that there was a link to an increase in sleep latency. It took them longer to fall asleep, then decreased their sleep efficiency as well. So a poor utilization of the bed. And then it took them a number of days as well to get their sleep back up to to normal phases. And some people in that study um, even had no sleep after the game because of such such caffeine that was such such the amount of caffeine that was, was actually consumed beforehand but then you have to also factor into account into into account that it was a, it's a contact sport rugby union uh, it was the game was played at night between seven and nine and then it was also under um under bright lights which obviously will stimulate people as well and then you have the post game kind of wind down get something to eat maybe have a beer and so on but but uh on average those guys didn't go to bed till 20 past two in the morning but some people went to bed as late as half seven in the morning 
And I think about four of those players didn't even sleep afterwards due to uh, excessive consumption of caffeine. So it can definitely play havoc on our sleep. Wow, that's uh, that's crazy. So it's like, if you want to sleep well, uh, be mindful of your caffeine intake and also of your, your rugby union plan. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be good for your sleep. But um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing as well, Ross, is that in the, in the people who have it overnight in shift work environments and they keep consuming caffeine throughout the night, because a lot of people will feel really groggy between three and six o'clock in the morning and they'll tend to try and use coffee, coffee or caffeine to keep them awake. Again, coming back to the pharmacokinetics, if they're consuming caffeine between three and six o'clock in the morning, it's not going to give them much of an effect to stay awake then. And now what's going to happen is when they go to bed at half six, seven in the morning, it's just going to disrupt their sleep. So for night shift workers, I'd recommend not consuming caffeine after 2 a.m. Because whatever ergogenic effect or alerting effect you're going to get from that, you've already, your, your window's over at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Any caffeine after that's just going to affect your recovery sleep the next day. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you can definitely overdo it with caffeine. And it almost sounds like people, when they're drinking too much, like kind of, you know, we'll say into the late afternoon or the evening, it's like they're almost trying to avoid feeling tired. It's kind of like you should naturally start to feel tired as the day winds down. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But trying to avoid it, that's a problem then because it's just like those natural cycles we're talking about with the body. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and I think that's what happens is people get them a bit like the naps. People get themselves in a bad cycle. And I've been guilty of this as well. Um, so there, like a few months ago, I had lots of work on. I was training really hard um, in, the, in, the, in the pool. I was doing like 20, 25 Ks a week. And trying to do jiu-jitsu and trying to work and do a few things. And I was getting really tired during the day because I was getting up so early. And next minute I was up to like four coffees a day and I was using caffeine to keep me awake. And then I wasn't able to sleep at night. And then I was getting up early in the morning. I just got myself into a bad cycle. So after Christmas, I went, right, that's it. Back down to one coffee a day. So I just have a coffee in the morning when I get up and, and that's it for the rest of the day. I don't do any more coffee after that. I invested in some good Irish lion's tea. And uh, I just have tea throughout today if I, if I want to have something. And it was, it was easily done. I just had got myself into a bad habit um, across the day. So again, you know, I'm, I'm, just as, uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just as bad as other people. I get myself into these bad habits too and have to, have to break the cycle. I'm by no means perfect. So the more caffeine you have during the day, then you're going to start affecting that sleep overnight. So it's this kind of yin and yang effect. Um, it's just as important what we do during the day as, as what it is at nighttime. So a lot of people will often say to me when I'm consulting to them, why are you asking me about what I do during the day? I thought we we're here to talk about my sleep. But if, if you're not getting enough light exposure during the day, if you're drinking too much coffee, if you're napping, uh, you're spending too many hours at work, you're not moving around enough during the day, or you're consuming too many calories, drinking a lot of alcohol before bed, working until 10 o'clock at night. Well, guess what? That's all the negative uh, elements to, to, to impact your sleep. And we have to address what's happening at the day or during the day before we even talk about your sleep because you need to get that sort of house in order before we we look at the recovery part yeah good good to know you're human after all and you, you know you don't sleep perfectly <laughs> and um and kind of to some of what you're saying is like good sleep it's not just like in the hour before bed it's kind of almost like throughout the day you can kind of you can kind of put yourself in a position for a good sleep sounds like from from all those points you've given so um just some of the yeah. research you've done, Ian. So uh, electronic uh, device use. So that's something that like, I'm very aware of. I think it, I even see uh, you know, some people in the gym are using their phones and stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, that could carry over to nighttime as well. So what, what have you seen around 
uh, use of devices and screen time and its effect on sleep. Yeah, so I've been involved in a number of studies on this. Uh, one laboratory with Madison Jones, um, looking at uh, elite or highly trained uh, netball athletes. Um, my own study I ran at the Australian Institute of Sport on judo athletes. And um, then Madison did another study on looking at self-reported electronic device use. And to, to our surprise, but not really, is that we found electronic devices don't really affect sleep. And this is not popular with the, with the common the common narrative that we would see getting pumped out from other researchers. It's probably worth noting, Ross, that there is actually a divide in the in the literature. If you look at the literature overall, some papers find um, an effect of electronic devices on sleep and some don't. And it's about a 50-50 split. And it depends on the type of research that was done. There seems to be kind of two camps emerging at the moment in the sleep science community where we we've I've discussed it with, this with some people where you know it's the it's the conversation between statistical relevance and clinical relevance. So some of the electronic device studies that have come out have basically said for those people using electronic device, and this is, I can't remember the exact number, but it, this is something to the effect, just to give you a bit of an idea. For those people using electronic devices, it took them 25 minutes to fall asleep. And for those not using electronic devices, it took them 15 minutes to fall asleep. So yes, and that's on average. Yes, there's a, a statistical difference between those two groups, 15 to 25, you know, each individual within that, if you did like a, peer t-tests or a t-test between them sorry you would find a statistical difference but is that clinically relevant and the answer is no because you know roughly 10 20 minutes is the time we should fall asleep but we we don't really care until it's up to about 30 minutes then there's problems with falling asleep so it's not really clinically relevant because overnight after getting the same amount of sleep what does it matter if one person takes a little bit longer than someone else and Matthew Walker, who wrote the book, Why We Sleep, actually last weekend came out with a small YouTube clip and said that he has changed or reversed his, his position of what he wrote in the book about electronic devices, that he has looked at the literature more critically and there is no definitive evidence to show that electronic devices affect sleep. Now, however, that being said, what I think may be happening for some people is particularly um, non-athletic types who are trying to work train, maybe get ready for an Ironman and so on, is the use of electronic devices before bed for work purposes. And I think many people, Ross, do this, is they'll come home, maybe do some exercise, have some dinner, spend some time with the kids. The kids go to bed. It's half eight, nine o'clock. They'll have a glass of wine. They'll put Netflix on. They'll open their laptop and they'll answer some emails to try and catch up. So they're sitting there having alcohol, watching Netflix, and, and answering these emails from their boss, maybe checking some calculations on a spreadsheet, whatever it might be. That's all stimulating activity that's going to increase cortisol when melatonin should be released. And depending on the type of email or the type of work that you're doing, may cause a lot of anxiety and stress. And this may be impacting the actual time, time to fall asleep as opposed to electronic device. Because I think there's a big difference between somebody scrolling through Instagram, w- watching funny reels or laughing at memes or listen to a podcast versus somebody who's answering an email from a boss who's quite irate or checking financial calculations in a spreadsheet. So two very different types of activities that are going to increase cortisol for people. So I think it's more about the type of activity that people are doing on electronic devices before they go to bed. And you'd see this as well, even if it wasn't electronic device, if I was reading, I don't know, a fairy tale before going to bed, versus trying to get through two or three chapters in a civil engineering book will be quite different reactions for people. 
Yeah, so it's like, it's, it's, it's almost as though the indirect effects, like if you're watching TikTok and you're laughing, you're kind of relaxed. You're not really secreting too much cortisol. But if you're, you know, as you say, chatting with the boss and it's 8.30 and you have a glass of wine, that's going to have a totally different effect on your body when you're trying to wind down. Um, so like when you're kind of giving general recommendations to clients, um, you know, wh whether they be uh, kind of pro like professional athletes or just uh, amateur athletes, um, is there any kind of general guidelines, kind of standard guidelines you give uh, to optimize their sleep? We always start with what we call the, um, the, the sleep hygiene tips, which are always good for no matter who you are, whether you're uh, a teenager, an adult, um, an elite athlete, it doesn't really matter. There's always, there's tips basically like that can be used to optimize or to improve your sleep. And those tips, um, which I can briefly tell you about, and you can include them in the show notes if you wish. Yeah. One is a uh, routine. So get up and go to bed at the same time. Every, yeah. So routine, get up to get up and go to bed, um, at the same time every day. So this is, we're trying to minimize the social jet lag. Exercise daily and consume minimal caffeine. So stop it by 12 o'clock. It's probably worth noting as well that early morning um, sunlight exposure is very good for synchronizing the supercosmic nucleus, the, the body clock. So when you're going out for a, maybe a quick walk in the morning or you're commuting to work, if you can avoid wearing sunglasses and get as much natural light as possible, this will help. It's also being shown as well that early morning sunlight exposure reduces um, depression as well in 80% of people. Deal with stress during the day. So again, this gets back to like doing these emails before you go to bed. So you want to deal with that stress during the day or the early evening and get it off your plate. Don't go to bed hungry or thirsty. So if you're doing fasting or so on, you might want to be aware of that timing of the, of the food because you don't want to be going to bed thinking about food. No caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, or heavy exercise within three to four hours of bed. This is not always achievable, but yeah. Um, but it's understanding where you are. So if you're going to go to the gym from like 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., understand that you may not fall asleep till about one o'clock in the morning from this. No screen time at least one hour before bed and no light emitting screens in the bedroom. This will be dependent on the person as well. Some people are very light sensitive, others aren't. But really, to add to that point, it's more about the activity you're doing in the hour before the bed, before bedtime. We've also found as well on that point, Ross, that you know, some people like having electronic devices because they can message people from home, uh, maybe FaceTime before they go to bed. And this is actually quite comforting and can actually be helpful with sleep because if they don't get to talk to a loved one before they go to bed, if they're away for a competition or work, actually might cause more angst and more awakenings. Uh, bedroom, have a comfortable and inviting. So have the temperature nice and, um, nice and low for males generally like the room colder. And you want to quiet and dark as well. Avoid daytime naps of more than 20 minutes. Avoid work within 90 minutes of bed. And if you're awake after 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you might want to get out of bed and do something relaxing until you fall asleep or feel a bit sleepy. So this might be getting up and stretching a bit, reading a, a silly magazine or a trashy novel. Um, do something basically to try and get you out of that cycle of not staying awake. So there are the 10 kind of general good sleep hygiene tips that we can... Uh, send over to you and you can put in the show notes as well, but they're, they're pretty standard. Um, and as you can see, they're, they're quite easy to implement. There's no cost associated with it. It's about putting some, I think, discipline and routine into your day. And this is where we can get a lot of benefit for our sleep. Yeah, they're kind of standard, but I think the thing is, or sort of like common sense, but then it's also like, 
I think people wouldn't follow them, you know, a lot of the time as well, or they get away from them or they get into like bad habits. So I think all their, their invaluable tips and yeah, I'd love to include them in the show notes. And then I'm just, I'm always interested to see what do the actual experts do themselves. So like for your own sleep um, throughout the day and then kind of come up to bedtime, what do you do from like, you know, based on the research that you've done and just from your own experience to kind of optimize your own sleep? Or is there any things like you will completely avoid doing so that you have a good night's sleep? So for me, I generally get up between 6 and 7 a.m. every morning, depending on what's happening. And obviously, like I was saying earlier on, I have to manage sort of projects and clients from different time zones. Um, so I kind of give myself that window of getting up between 6 and 7 most mornings. Uh, at night, I go to bed anywhere between 9 and 10 p.m., um, when I go, uh, so the first thing I probably do in the morning is, like I said, I just have one coffee now a day. Um, I will exercise every day for at least one hour, if not more. I'll try to do uh, at least 10,000 steps in my day, whether it's a combination of swimming and running or walking. So at least at least get that in every day. Uh, I, at the moment, I'm trying to increase my, my protein and uh, have a caloric deficit because I want to try and reduce a little bit of body fat as I get older. That's currently what I'm in. So I'm increasing my strength training and kettlebells and so on. So I'm hitting it from two angles. Um, what else do I do? I, uh, I try to get as much natural light as possible. So my, my actual office that I'm in has got probably 50% of it has light as uh, natural light coming in. Um, I'll take lots of breaks throughout the day. I'll go out and walk around the block. I get to work from home. So it's perfect. Um, the other thing I'll do is I'll eat small and often across the day because I find that big meals make me feel heavy and tired. At nighttime, I try to have my main meal between 6 and 7 p.m., no later than 7. And then when I do go to bed, I will read basically a novel, short stories. And I'm actually reading a book on Irish fairy tales at the moment, which is quite good. Something like that before I go to sleep. Any sort of heavy lifting I would call it of the brain that's cognitive in nature of like reading technical books or getting into a subject. I'll do all during daylight hours. I will not read those books at nighttime because they're too alerting. And then for me, as I fall asleep, I'll generally listen to something on YouTube, um, like kind of like a, like a podcast or something that's low intensity. I've always had a problem with falling asleep, Ross, from a young age. So back in, back in uh, my teenage years of the early 90s, I would fall asleep listening to uh, 2FM and talk back radio from 10, 10 o'clock till 12 o'clock when they had shows on there. So I'm one of those people. I was like a, probably an 80 year old man when I was 14. I like to listen to talk back radio. <laughs> so I find it comforting to, to fall asleep. Whereas my wife will fall asleep like just straight away, but I take a long time to fall asleep. So I've always had a problem with sleep latency. And to do that, then I, I have that routine of going to bed, reading a novel and then listening to some, something on the, on YouTube or, or BBC World Service to kind of fall asleep. And when I do that, I feel, I, I sorry, when I do that, I notice uh, I feel more relaxed. But I also notice an increase in my time to talk, fall asleep. So if I don't have that, it can take me up to um, 45 minutes to fall asleep. And when I do have it, I can fall asleep in 10 minutes. So for me, it actually works. Yeah, very good. So you have a routine that you know works. That's the main thing. Even if, yeah. you know, um, it was 2FM, it still works. So that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> 2FM was different back then. Yeah, it might have been actually good to listen to. But uh, just the last thing then is just the wearables. So, you know, you have a lot of like Apple Watches and 
uh, I have the Fitbit here and uh, just stuff like the Aura Ring. Would you would you recommend any of those sorts of things to improve people's sleep, or could you track it maybe with the old pen and paper? So I think it's worth the the analogy or the thing I reference people to is um, you know we see in society that people are getting heavier over the last twenty or thirty years but we also see more widespread use of a weighing scales. And so the question I'd ask you, Ross, is with more weighing scales, have people got slimmer or heavier? They... <laughs> yeah, it's the chicken and the egg, isn't it? Well, people have actually got heavier is the answer, and we have got more weighing scales. So it's not like the invention of the weighing scales or wide, wide, widespread use of it has actually led to a reduction in obesity uh, across society. It's actually increasing everywhere. So... We have to understand that these wearables are measurement devices that don't actually help you get to sleep and they're not a silver bullet. They're measurement devices that can aid you in quantifying your sleep. So that's the first thing because so many people will say to me and when I do talks in corporate talks or for groups, oh yeah, I've been wearing a Fitbit for six months and my sleep hasn't got any better. I'm like, well, what have you done? Well, I've been wearing a Fitbit. Yeah, but how did you get, what do you mean it hasn't, what did you think it was going to do? So I think it's understanding what the technology does. It's an assessment tool. When we look at assessments for sleep, the, the gold standard is polysomnography in a laboratory. And then you've got different variant levels of polysomnography that you can use in the home or ambulatory polysomnography levels uh, two, three, and four. And then you have actigraphy. And actigraphy are these wearable devices. And then you have questionnaires, and then you have the diaries. So diaries are tracking with pen and paper is notoriously um, uh, our control in terms of... <laughs> people's accuracy. So in some of the research I've ran, looking at a, as a sub-analysis of how good were people of measuring their own sleep, it was generally out by 90 minutes a night. So if people were saying they slept eight hours, they were generally sleeping about six and a half hours. So anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes, people were out. With the wearables, it's constantly changing. Currently, the best research out um, on these devices would show that um, the Fitbit algorithm is probably the best in terms of identifying sleep duration. So we use the Fitbit Versa in some of our work with our clients. And we also use the ReadyBand, which is a fatigue science watch. And I have found just personally that the Oura Ring was out um, and, the, and the Garmin was the most inaccurate, which actually lines up with some of the research as well. But different papers will have different outcomes as well. But the Fitbit seems to be the best one at the moment in terms of measuring sleep duration. Now, I don't get paid by Fitbit and I'm promoting the product, but I'm just telling you what exactly is in the science. But the sleep stages in all these devices, so when people see light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, stage one, stage two, that's using heart rate variability to infer these sleep stages. That is wildly inaccurate across those devices. So I don't place any faith in those. Um, I don't even bother looking at them, actually, because uh, they cause more angst than anything else. And the other thing I'd say to people is wearing a, a wearable device. Don't just get up in the morning and go, oh, my Fitbit said I only got five hours sleep and I can't you know, run today or my readiness score is this or my other score is that. Reflect on how you feel, where you are in your training cycle, what your objectives are as well. So it's really important to look at long-term data with, with these wearables. So generally when people come to me for consultation and support, I want a minimum of 14 nights of data and ideally, I want 21 nights of data before I have a conversation with them. But I'll definitely want 14 nights of data before we have a conversation because we want to see what's happening across weeks. And we want to look for any trends in a day and any trends in a weekend. Ideally, the more data you bring, the better it is. Um, and so we have the ability as well, some of the systems that we use, if you've been wearing a Fitbit for the last year, we can actually 
football at that and look at it for the last year and then go through it and interrogate it and, and look for some trends in it. You know, I've had athletes come to me to be Merlin or ring for nearly three years and then we go back and we look at it. So it can be very helpful in identifying long-term trends and patterns, but please do not think of them as a silver bullet for managing your sleep. They're not going to actually help you sleep. They're just an assessment tool. That's exactly, yeah, they're just a tool and they're not, there's no kind of intervention there where they should actually improve your sleep unless you're trying to do something like everything you've mentioned already, which has been brilliant. So Ian, is there anything that you haven't mentioned or we haven't gone over that you want to touch on or mention your own podcast and all the work that you're doing? Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I can do just do a few, a few moments of uh, self-promotion, if that's all right. Fire ahead, yeah. <laughs> the first thing I'd like to self-promote is um, a study that we're running uh, myself um, Dr. Andy Galpin, who you may have heard of, he's based yeah. there in California as well. So myself and Andy and uh, Dr. Reed Rail, who works for the UFC in Shanghai, we're running a study currently um, looking at sleep and nutrition of combat sport athletes. So if you have any listeners that partake in any sort of combat sport uh, from Tai Chi all the way through to MMA, whether you're a hobbyist, an amateur, a semi-pro, a pro, we'd love to have you on this study. Um, you can go to combat sports science.com and access the study there it'll take you about 20 minutes to do the to do the survey and as part of that you get a free report sent back to you in a pdf so you know if you're boxing muay thai kickboxing savat letwe mma judo wrestling bjj sambo tai chi qigong capoeira fencing kendo karate aikido taekwondo jiu-jitsu kung fu and more we want to hear from you so we'd love for you to come in on that study and i'll give you the links as well, Ross, if you wouldn't mind putting them down. Yeah, yeah, no, the, please in, do. In the show notes. One of my clients does MMA. He was competing there recently. He's part of a club back in Galway. So I will uh, absolutely uh, let him know. And also put in a, a word for me with Andy as well, because I asked him to come on and he said he's, he's too busy. So maybe I'll scratch his back and, and he'll scratch mine. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a busy dude. I do some work with Andy as well outside of the, of the research. And he's, he's a very busy man. He's in demand, so which is good for him. I'm sure, um, yeah, he must be. So on top of that as well, Ross, we're going to be launching uh, three new programs with Sleep for Performance. Um, and one is Combat Sports Sleep Optimization Program. And this is a methodology basically where we can work with, with you as a combat sport athlete to look at potential prevalence of sleep disorders. We'll look at your sleep and wake behaviors. And we'll also then meet with you um, via Zoom for a one-on-one -on -one to basically go through all of that information, that data, and provide you with the best possible path forward. Because today we've spoke a lot of generalities about sleep and performance, but in this combat sports sleep optimization program, we can tailor make this for you and give you the best possible advice depending on all these different factors um, which may impact you. And so that's one thing that's going to be getting launched in April. And we're also launching um, a, a, a sleep optimization program for athletes so general athletes as well. So we've had like runner athletes and so on. And then also a business leaders sleep optimization program because we get lots of business leaders trying to optimize their day for meetings. They've got time zone challenges, especially with lots of people working from home, online, and so on. So those, those three optimization programs will be launched in April. Um, so people are welcome to, to go over and sign up for those. Um, I think they're, they're priced pretty decent. Um, so people can have a look at those. And if people want to do, want to have any talks to be done sort of online, um, we, do, we do a standard sleep for performance um, an hour to 90 minute lecture online that we can provide via Teams or Zoom as well, which people like. 
And then obviously we got Melia's consulting where we consult the industry around fatigue risk management, design of shifts and rosters, optimization of productivity as well. So we often do like productivity and financial analysis there. And then there's sleep for performance where we got over a hundred podcast episodes, uh, lots of blogs there as well. Uh, lots of information um, there, lectures and so on. Uh, so there's just, there's just tons of stuff over at, at those two websites and you'll see a lot of cross links and cross collaborations across the both of them. So go there for everything. And then if people want to listen to that other podcast I have called Learning to Die, uh, you can go over there and access all the episodes free there as well. Myself and Karen, we talk from everything about nuclear near misses in the 50s and 60s to Hiroshima to the Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi uh, to uh, Ernest Becker's work on the denial of debt, climate change to um, can medicine be cured uh, with Seamus O'Matney from Ireland. The professor has written this great book. We've got lots of far wide range and topics there. and uh yeah just always interested to to hear from people and connect and uh you know if you have any questions you can send them through as well and sometimes we do listener episodes so uh, very much about translating this work out into the real world and um for me to learn as much from everybody as uh, they can learn from me as well so definitely a reciprocal uh, relationship i'm trying to promote here with sleep performance media's consulting and with this research as well so yeah, I kind of drawn on there a bit, but there's lots over there. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, you're a true uh, academic and practitioner. Um, and, academic, uh, academic, Ross. Academic, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the the Denial of Death is a book that I've been uh, looking to read, so I'll really have to get on that and listen to your podcast as well. And I'll oh, catch- Ross, for, on, for, yep. on that, just, just before you go on, if, you, if you're going to get into Denial of Death, I'd actually recommend you start with a different book first which is a book called Mortals, which we had Rachel Menzies on recently. I actually think that's a better book to read before I'd go and read Becker. I actually did it the opposite way around. And I would say that if you start with Mortals, it's an easier book to read. And then you can go back into Becker's work because Becker's work can be hard if, you, if you're not familiar with some of the overall themes. And then on that podcast, we, we spoke with people from the Ernest Becker Foundation. Karen and I then broke down some of the Becker's work as well ourselves. And then we also had another guy on who is going to be, uh, his name is Craig. He's going to be writing the biography of Ernest Becker. And he was, he's an ex-punk rock singer and he's based in, I think, up in Oregon. So those type of things will be probably better to read and listen to before you go down the rabbit hole on the better work. Because um, I think if you go back that way, it's probably easier. It gives you more context. Yeah, no, I love that. Brilliant. So your man's base just up the road here. Um, so yeah, I definitely will take your advice. Um, and I look forward to listening to that podcast as well. And I'll attach all the notes uh, when I post the episode. So, Ian, thank you very much for your time. It's been great. And uh, we'll talk again soon. No worries. Thanks, Ross.